Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Where are we exactly? Well, we, we spend a good piece of this week's episode discussing location. There's no question that we live in weird times. And for most of this conversation with Phil Ford and J.F. Martell, hosts of one of my absolute favorite podcasts in the universe, Weird Studies, we talk about weirdness as something that is, in one sense, a ubiquitous feature of the real, but is also more obvious, more visible, more palpable if you happen to be inhabiting specific addresses, whether cognitively, philosophically, anatomically, historically. What makes something weird? Is weird the new normal? And if so, what's weird now that weird is normal? JF, whom you'll remember from earlier episodes of Future Fossils, uh, 18 and 71, and Phil, who makes his first guest appearance on Future Fossils in this episode, turn over all of the rocks paving the streets of modern civilization and reveal the eldritch horrors lurking just beneath them, the profound and disturbing oddity of the banal and the familiar, and the possibility for the transcendent in the mundane and everyday. I find their show to be a great inspiration, something I really look forward to. I was on their show in episode 26, talking about my ideas of the glass age and the material agency of glass as a dominant force of modernity. But it's been over a year since that episode came out, so I've been waiting a very long time to wrangle the, these two busy dudes onto future fossils, and now that we have, I'm really excited to share this with you. But first... It's been an unusual week for Future Fossils on Patreon, and I just want to give my deep, sincere thanks to all 140-some folks helping keep this show alive and thriving, including new patrons Ronald Hook, Dominic Barboza, Naveen Srivitsav, Joel Thompson, Nathan Bennett, Roses, Eben, who edited his pledge up, Mike Lewinsky, who edited his pledge up, Mel King, and Kevin Walmut, who you might remember as the guest host for 116, upped his pledge this week also. That's the best week this show has ever had. I've been trying to reach a goal of 150 people now for over a year, and uh, every month folks dip out, their credit cards get declined, they lose interest. It takes a lot to keep this show afloat, to keep your ears unblemished from the otherwise necessary advertisements. You know, you gotta eat to live. We talk about that in this episode. So thank you, all of you, and I hope that you are enjoying all of the secret episodes that have been released behind that paywall, including the whole second half of last week's conversation with Stuart Kaufman on quantum physics and consciousness. This week, I'll also be posting the recording from our sci-fi book club call on C.G. and Liu's Dark Forest. We're going to discuss the third book of his trilogy next month. I have recordings of some of the best musical performances I've done in years about to hit the feed as uh, exclusives for at least a while. And it just makes me feel good knowing that I have something to give back to everyone to express my gratitude 
for helping future fossils be a thing. If you feel like you benefit from this show, that it enriches your life in some way, I hope that you'll hop on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and uh, consider enrolling yourself. And, and even if you're totally broke and the only money that you can spend is on the luxury pocket computer you're using to listen to this and your totally necessary daily lattes, uh, I understand. <laughs> and I'm just glad to have you listening and hopefully sharing this show with friends you think will appreciate it. And now that I've given unto Caesar what is Caesar's, here is a most excellent discussion with music professor Phil Ford, filmmaker J.F. Martell, hosts of the excellent Weird Studies podcast. Strap in, friends, and enjoy, and I'll see you next week. Oh my God! You too. There's. Thank you for both appearing on the show as an entity together for the first time. JF, you've been on the show for a while, but Phil, I'm honored that I get to um, initiate you into this into the mysteries museum. of of the future. Yeah. So I am just in awe of Weird Studies podcast. It's one of my favorite shows ever, and. Having just finished Eric Davis's book, which he discussed with you on on your show, the last chapter where he gets into the globalization of weirdness and the mainstreaming of weirdness has me feeling like the framing of weird studies as a place for academics to discuss the weird because there is no space in academia. Mm. You might have closed that case prematurely. Mm. Mm. I feel like the, the world is picking up on this stuff a lot faster than any of us were expecting even a couple of years ago. That's yeah, true. So it's a delight to, to give you some stage here to, to discuss all that. Well, thank you for Super. having us. Thanks for having us on, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I would love for you guys to just tell a little bit of the story of how your show came to pass, and uh, we can just pick it up from there. Yeah, well, it started... Uh, well, I met Phil... Um, in 2015 2015 yeah right just after my book came out uh he was in ottawa we did an, an event together and uh shortly after the event we started um writing emails uh and it, it the, the correspondence kind of blew up into this this project really i mean we were writing like eight thousand word emails to one another kind of thing <laughs> seriously i'm not exaggerating and yeah. uh it went on for what a couple of years a year and a half something like that two years i don't yeah. i don't remember i'm really bad well, we, with after dates. after a year and change we started saying like okay so what is this project what are we so doing like, <laughs> yeah it, it 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 grew past just being a kind of intense epistolary communication uh and and became something else but we didn't know what exactly right. We knew that there was some project here, but we didn't know what form it might take. We for a while, we were sort of toying with the idea of, like, uh, maybe there's some kind of book that we could fashion from these things that we had written. But that kind of went nowhere. And then at a certain point, we had the idea uh, – I think I had a feeling of frustration at the at the time in, in 2017 that there were certain kinds of conversations that I felt that, you know, I actually call back to what you just said. Maybe I said this or felt this prematurely, but it just felt like 
we're never going to be able to have certain kinds of conversations in the sphere that I'm accustomed to, at any rate, the sphere of academic publishing and academic, I don't know, academic discourse. And so we started kicking around this idea of doing a podcast, the conceit of which would be just dealing with ideas that are hard to think, because I guess that was something that really emerged from our conversations, our, our email exchanges, and also like talking to each other, um, was the notion that there are certain ideas that just have a kind of refractory quality, depending on where you are. I mean, it's sort of relative, right? It's ideas of fairies, for example, to use a, a, a favorite figure um, of ours. It's not hard to sell fairies uh, in some contexts, in some parts of the world, in some ages, uh, but it's hard to sell it in academia. I'll tell you that. Um, that's an idea that's hard to think. And it gets real interesting when you start saying, well, why? Or what are the kind of cognitive or kind of adjustments in worldview that would have to happen in order for a given unfashionable or untimely idea to become thinkable? Now, for me, at any rate, is where the specific idea for weird study started another aspect of it that's uh, been interesting for me at least is the finding the the kind of weird implications of really common ideas right um some widespread beliefs when you really stop and look at them they start to have these very strange implications that make the world pretty weird so one of the things one of the leitmotifs of the show is we talk about the modern all the time modernity and then we find out all kinds of things like one show will end on the note that you know the modern is the is 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 anathema to the weird it's the banishing of the weird and then sometimes we'll end the show by saying oh the modern is the weirdest age ever where we live in the most enchanted time ever like it's just and we yeah. and every show is kind of a story of failure in a certain way like to me like the shows where we really succeed the shows we we where we end up in a place we never expected to be in thinking things we didn't expect to think and not really knowing what the hell it is we're thinking. <laughs> yeah. And it's that feeling of kind of the suspended, this kind of a suspension of, of cognitive certainty, right? This kind of like ambig- ambiguity of think of thought itself, where thought starts to like kind of run off with you and t- takes you somewhere new that kind of at least that's what that's what I crave the most, and I think Phil would agree with that. Oh yeah, it's, it's totally. just those are the magic moments, and then um, so we'll have a long conversation. Then we we edit it down to a reasonable length, but and then we find a shape in it that we didn't even know was there till we started the editing process. Oh, it has a kind of arc. You know, some shows have more of an arc than others, but when they really work, there's a kind of there's a, th- a weird transcendent third there, like a, a weird um, kind of overtone to the conversation that neither yeah. of us is responsible for, but that kind of gives it its shape. So that's was enough. That was exciting enough to keep us going. And it's been like oh, well over a year now, a year and a half, uh, even more than that, I think. And it's yeah. So we're having a blast doing it. But that's that's how it started. Yeah. To go one layer deeper. Obviously, all of us and everyone who's shown up as a guest on Weird Studies is drawn to the the weird, drawn to the edges of the map. And without trying to like psychoanalyze myself as a performance here, I you know I notice living and working at the Santa Fe Institute, which regards itself as very pioneering and is very pioneering 
and has historically articulated a very uh, effective critique to reductionist science and launched this kind of a radically different way of performing science. And yet, even in that situation, I still find myself like pulling at the fringe, you right. know, pestering with <laughs> marginalia questions, <laughs> trying to turn over every single rock, asking why we make the assumptions that we do. I mean, what is it about the weird that is so fascinating to the two of you in the first place? What has incentivized you to go tilting after these windmills? Because, I mean, for me, I have no clue. You know, like, all I know is that at some point in my early 20s, I decided that I didn't want to do a job that could just as easily be done by someone else to like move out of the line right right let someone else take my place and go pursue something unique and then as my friend Stephen phipps from college said no man is an island but some are very long peninsulas <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's kind of weird that's how i found you anyway yeah well uh, what we, do you what would you say jf um where what is it that i find fascinating about the weird um I don't. I don't know. I think. I think Phil once said that I, I. I have like a, like a foot in the weird. Like I kind of fell into the weird, well when I was a kid. And I think that's kind of true. I don't. I, that was. I don't want that to sound like boasting or anything. It's just like <laughs> I've been interested in weird stuff my whole life. There's a Leonard Cohen song called "Waiting for the Miracle," where. Um, the narrator is just basically saying, you know, all this stuff was going on and you wanted this and you wanted that, talking to his lover, presumably. Sorry, I was waiting for the miracle. And I always have the feeling that I was just waiting for something crazy to happen. Um, and at some point I realized that the fact that a creature in this universe could wait for a miracle at all is miraculous. Just that is miraculous. And so I began to get interested in just the weirdness of everything, right? Just like to see, you know, maybe it has to do with, ex you know, experimenting with psychedelics, that sort of thing, but just just getting kind of obsessed with uh, skewing the picture, you know, just tilting the frame a bit and looking at things. And it's just something that I that I was always kind of into. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to encounter weird shit when I was a kid, like um, a short period of haunting in my house um, and uh, I saw a UFO when I was 12 and I had a series of very dis many disturbing dreams that, that I just found this stuff endlessly fascinating I and mean, it was just drawn to it I, I guess I guess so I guess it's just like kind of part of my shtick you know that, that's what I that's what I'm into right <laughs> um, so that's that's my answer to that how I got in, interested in this we talked about this a little bit in the show we did on William James and the essays he wrote on psychical research, where, you know, it was sort of joking that uh, J.F. grew up in a magical realist novel. He's like a magical realist dude. Whereas I feel like I'm actually kind of a, a rather prosaic sort of person who got blackjacked by weird shit. You know, I, I was a lot of it for me was, you know, when I started meditating and that all on its own being something that 
revealed to me just how limited some of my assumptions about the universe were. Never been a big drug dude. You know, I never had that was never my opening, like, uh, for, I think for a lot of people, LSD uh, or mushrooms, that's like something that kind of causes the first sort of crack in the dike. You know, that's the sort of like seawall that we build against the seething forces of whatever, you know, <laughs> the seething Lovecraftian, whatever. And for me, that was meditation. But, you know, even before that, though, I'm I'm looking back to earlier parts in my life, you know, when I was, uh, when all I was doing was playing piano. Um, I was at one point fairly serious in studying the piano. And I was always the guy that, you know, I was always playing really obscure pieces of music, really obscure repertory, weird shit. And some of it is just, uh, some of it is just a kind of egotism where it's just sort of like, I don't want to do the same stuff as other people, or I don't want other people doing the same stuff as me. Right. And there is a little bit of a kind of a stubbornness in me, which is just sort of like, if, if I start doing something and I suddenly find a lot of people kind of flocking around and they want in on that, then I want to move on <laughs> and find something where they're, uh, where it's a little less crowded. Uh, I guess I kind of like, um, I guess I have this sort of don't fence me in sort of feeling. I like open spaces. Mm. Um, I, I don't like to live in a, an overdeveloped, I don't want to, I don't want to live somewhere where they've already put up condos. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, you know, I think about that a lot with respect to slums of one city are kind of topologically and topographically the slums of another city. You know, the financial mm -hmm. district is the financial district. Mm. This isn't a great example because this is Santa Fe is probably one of the only towns where this isn't the case. But there's actually something about someone gave a TEDx talk about this, about how the east side of town, because of the spin of the earth, tends to be the town, the side of the town where all of the industrial exhaust blows. Huh, and so like right. the east side of like Oakland and the east side of L.A. and the east side of all of these other cities are like the same the, the landscape sort of creates these that's super interesting yeah something yeah. about that with um neurodiversity and understanding ourselves as participating in an ecosystem even if the system does not acknowledge us like even if <laughs> academia does not acknowledge weird studies then we are still participating in collective computation in which all of these different world framings are contributing to some understanding at the social or civilizational level, you know, right, that, that right. There's, and so in that sense, I'm always thinking about the loner chimpanzees. There's like, they're just depressed. So they go live on the edge. They don't groom each other. They hang out on their own. And because they hang out on their own, they are the anchorites that are right. the, the membrane of the troop of chimpanzees. The sadhus. Yeah, they're the ones that encounter the leopard first. Right. So there's, I think that, you know, the, yeah. the contrarian nature, which in some sense is like, you can just template that over anything. And it's like content independent. It's mm. like if, if suddenly everyone was talking about weird studies. We'd have to start a podcast called Weirder Studies or something. <laughs> Yeah, there's like the, there's some sort of uh, hipster reverse psychology right. thing going yeah. on. There, uh, mundane know? studies. Yeah. yeah. So 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 what you're saying is that we are a couple of depressed uh, chimpanzees with bad hygiene that are going to get eaten first. 
That's yeah. <laughs> that's that's where we're going with that. We're the first alarm, right? And naturally, everybody who's in the chimpanzee massage train does not want to listen to the perimeter alarm network. You know, right? <laughs> the screams of the chimpanzee being being eaten. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, McLuhan's idea of uh, art and uh, probing, right? Because uh, mm, probes. Um, he called artists um he called art an early uh was it a distant early warning distant early warning because there was actually yeah. that was called the do line that was that's a cold war canadian exactly thing. god you called yourself a canadian you don't even know about the fucking do line it's just when i when i i i do know the do line i just can remember the order of the words <laughs> it could have been dwe do it I know. <laughs> yeah, no, but anyway, so, I mean, it's sort of like this great metaphor, the Cold War contrivance of the distant early warning system, which is like this a series of Christmas tree lights strung out over an enormous distance. And you can just imagine a few lonely outposts with like a revolving radio dish and, and an alcoholic who's like ending the station and morosely yeah. writing things with, down with his ashtray built right into the machine like exactly it's part, part of the thing he's, work, he's working with yeah that's what we are so there's there's this whole thing about you know when we when i'm thinking about what is the weird and time and time again any kind of scholarly approach on the weird has to get back to the the etymological notion of it that weird is the W-Y-R-D. It comes from the, that which is twisted. Yeah. And, mm, yeah. and so, you know, I think about this with in terms of that question, the chaos theory question of how long is the coastline of Britain? The boundary of that island is sort of indefinitely long because you're looking at this folded layer. And then the closer you look at it, the more folded it, it appears. Yeah, it's fractal, right? Right, yeah. Right. So with a fractal, you have a hard time drawing a line and saying this is what's inside the fractal and this is what's outside of the fractal and so Mm. obviously there's a great sort of retro colloquialism in which the weird that eric davis is talking about is the weird as exposited by the freaks you know by the twisted people but uh there's the sense in which rich doyle is talking about it where he's he's saying that the psychedelic experience discloses how these simple categories of inside and outside are insufficient because right. we're like a tube, right? And like the, that tube branches out into countless other tubes. And like, if you were to put a sufficiently small endoscope up my nose, right. then you could like go through thousands of miles of tubes. And like, at what point are you in the body? Like, right. Is it when you go up the nose or? Yeah, right. So right. this question of like us being sort of marginal, Part of that, I think we have to update to this system, the planet system that we're all stumbling into awareness of, for which it's not really clear, like where the the radiation goes everywhere, right? Climate change is everywhere. So where is the inside of this? Are we really even standing on the planet? No, because we're like under miles and miles of atmosphere, Right, like we're at the bottom of a fluid, like like there's a dissolution of categories anyway, any which way, any way you think you cut it, and that's true. And I and there's you know that's that great phrase from Eric's book, which I think he took from somewhere else. I can't the weird the glo- global weirding, right? Mm-hmm. That the, yeah. in a sense we're all we've all been thrust into this situation where it is no longer 
viable and it's no longer like really feasible to ignore the weird or to see the weird as 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 a fringe phenomenon we live in in i mean come on man your president just said on the news that he wanted to buy greenland just like off the cuff (laughs) we live in fucking weird times and um I mean, it's it's not you can just just rewind yourself like 10 years and imagine yourself just knowing what would happen in U.S. politics in 2019. And you will see how weird this time is like it's crazy. And yet and so I don't I think it's not surprising today that we see people, you know, clamping down and like digging into these traditional categorizations and, and cognitive um classification systems that they've this you know that that are that are evidently obsolete but people cling to them because the reality that's being presented to us in the moment to moment is so fucking weird that um it's not it's not obvious what we should do at this point really like um yeah so so there is a kind of a mainstreaming of the weird as you called it in your email i think that's clear and I think that every discipline in academia, for certain, is going through this crisis. So it's like every discipline is getting weirder. It's like in social psychology, right? I didn't follow this closely, but a few years ago, there was some meta studies were done showing that basically psychology didn't exist. Social psychology was not a real discipline. That nothing was what? nothing was replicable. Nothing had oh, been the replication replicated. crisis. The replication yes. crisis. Like it's just it's just the whole like that's a huge crisis. I want to intervene just to address that particular thing, because one of the things that I've found out recently through uh, James Evans at the University of Chicago, his team just published some work on this a couple days ago, I think. They found that part of the problem with weak studies, like studies that are difficult to reproduce, is that they're coming out of departments that are sharing funding sources, they're sharing researchers with other universities and they're having other universities where people have the exact same ideas and often are the same people or are friends of colleagues of students of the same people that are the ones replicating the research so what they were saying basically is that truly strong empirical research comes out of isolated institutions because you know when we're talking about like what it means to create a scientific fact like the whole point of it was to get out of second person consensus confirmation in the church right and like have it be something that transcended culture and yet now science has become a culture exactly that has itself become so hyper connected internally that it's facing a church crisis yeah like it's it's <laughs> like we're all agreeing so much that we don't even realize that we're not even talking about reality anymore right yeah so so un- unsurprising results i guess um but still a real crisis when you think about it but of course what's happening today is that you'll hit a crisis but then everybody needs to go to work the next day (laughs) so everybody keeps going as if the crisis didn't happen and yet we know we all know you know like that the crisis that you know it's like that the opening to later lady chatterley's lover which like um the cataclysm has happened we are among the ruins and we have to keep going. <laughs> so we keep going as if we were still in the old town when in fact the old town is rubble, right? Mm. So Yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon, a kind of double entry bookkeeping that we do with things that seriously imperil our sense of boundaries, our sense of a settled self. Like you know, thinking about um you know, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that for me, you know, engaging in a 
practice of meditation. I'm a Zen Buddhist. That, for me, was a kind of open sesame of uh, a lot of possibilities that I had hitherto never contemplated. Um, and, you know, one of the fundamental things that people talk about in Buddhist and um, more generally sort of contemplative circles is the idea of no self. That's kind of, you know, it's one of the big... That's one of the three marks of existence, like the the the, uh, the fact that we don't have a sort of permanent self-existent selves. Now, it's all fun and games to sort of play with that idea until you realize at a certain point, like, oh, shit, you were talking about me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and, and, and it's that there's a lot of work that goes into like integration of ideas that are fun to play with but there's a difference between an idea that you entertain and an idea that is uh something just a, a a kind of an existential idea something that you live with that that governs your existence that has to be lived in order to be grasped and those kinds of ideas sink in slowly and unevenly, and there's usually a kind of a messy and sort of explosive process on the surface as certain cherished notions of one's uh, – and I'm not just talking about self. I mean, if we're thinking about what JF was just talking about a moment ago, you know, being a person who gets up and goes to work and does normal stuff – and yet in the shadow of an awareness that everything that you knew even a short time ago kind of isn't there anymore, that there's this whole new world that we're living in. And yet you go on sort of about your day as if nothing has changed and there's this dissonance. And I feel like you see some kind of, I don't know, some crazy manifestations on the sur surface of people's character as they're trying to resolve those contradictions at some level. Right. I've heard it described as it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye, like letter I. The eye. Yeah. That, oh, Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to create a health startup. All right. <laughs> Yeah, it's but, true. I mean, but, it, but that is it, right? And again, to call on Richard Doyle here, uh, he did a web seminar on Philip K. Dick talking about paranoia and metanoia and mm. how, you know, the condition of the transition from, like you guys have talked about in your McLuhan episode, the distance of print, you know, the way that the solitary reading experience and the various affordances of print media lead to the self-authoring modern liberal agent right you right. know that's like one person one vote the rational actor of economics but the internet leads to uh, what i love doug rushkoff has called fractal noia you right. know <laughs> where it's like you end up with so many different contradictory truth claims. And like you're saying, uh, the existential knowing that everything is connected, but you're still riding this momentum from print world that yeah. I'm somehow separate from that. And so it leads to the condition of feeling as though everyone's out to get you. Yeah. Or if you're somehow like remarkably well-adjusted, you end up with like a Rob Bresney pronoia where you feel right. like everything's working in your favor. But it's like, at least that crazy person's having fun. 
right? Right, right. Um, <laughs> but it's still nuts. It's still only half digested. And mm. like the fully mm. digested thing is a true figure ground reversal. But in the middle of that, suddenly you can't yeah. tell the difference between the figure and the ground. Suddenly, like Barney the dinosaur is wearing shit. What do they call those? The sniper? Oh, uh, a ghillie a ghillie suit. A ghillie suit. Yes. Yeah. You know, suddenly it's just like, where'd he go? That is a striking, vivid image. Barney in a ghillie suit. <laughs> Just drawing a bead on you. There's a little red dot crawling across your forehead. Barney is going to take you the fuck out. He's a predator. Now. Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that that's exactly yeah. it, right? Is it's like it, it just sort of invokes all of these paranoid associations. I mean, Phil, are you are have you stabilized in in a metanoiac? Uh, <laughs> nope no i don't even i don't even know what that is uh, can't even imagine it so so yes <laughs> yeah i think there's there's a lot to be said for the moment where f there's the, the the kind of liminal moment where the figure and ground are reversing there's something special about that time it's like i'm just thinking about it now like it, it seems like one thing that i always come back to in my thoughts is the way that artworks whether they're novels or paintings or whatever paradoxically because the term's figure ground comes from art criticism because of the you know because of the z axis that allows you to have figure and ground like to separate them but the thing is that even if you have uh perspective in an, in an artwork it's still one flat surface and you know it and it seems to me that the synchronicity of an artwork the, the, the kind of connections, the symbolic connections between the different different elements, say, of a painting, have a lot to do that the, the the kind of like um the obviousness or the the kind of numinosity of these connections is made possible by the flat surface. The the, the annulment of a certain dimension in order to, to, to flatten things onto one ontological plane where it's you have to decide whether the background means nothing or is actually what, what the painting's all about. Because the background is there. It's being shown to you. It's all being shown. And in a way, I mean, we just ended a show that we haven't released yet. Um, or maybe we did. Maybe that was the extra we just recorded. We ended it with the idea of uh, Naked Lunch from uh, William Burroughs. You know, oh, yeah. Naked Lunch, yep. he describes yeah. it as the moment where everyone sees what's at the end of every fork. And in a way, I think we... Sorry. <laughs> and in a way, I think we kind of live in one of those moments. We live in a moment where we can see into things in a strange way. We can see into the absurdity of our institutions. We can see into, and I'm just saying absurdity. That's maybe not, not the right word, but the surre the surreality of, of of institutions, the weirdness of history, the kind of contingency of every category. We this is an opportunity to see this, and I don't think that when we see this, it's just like an expression of a particular zeitgeist or of a particular epistem that we're in. I think it's actually, I would argue that it's actually seeing something quite objective about the universe. Mm. So. So maybe we don't, you know, like we keep thinking of our times as kind of a transition, a time of transition, where every time the every era is an era of transition. What is this era in itself? What does it represent? What does it give us? What will the nostalgics of the future look back on our time and wish they could have lived? You know, what is it that we get that we we have? Because we tend we tend to put ourselves down quite a bit as 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 post postmodern people. We think we have nothing left to offer, but maybe this is a a time of discovery. Maybe this is a time of, I don't know, truth-seeking of some sort. Right? Well, you know, Aleister Crowley thought so. Aleister Crowley's 
I think, uh, an important figure. I mean, if we want to talk about what are some of the conversations that humanists, people in the academic humanities could could have that for the most part they're not having? How about treating Aleister Crowley as a major figure of the high modern period, somebody to put alongside Pound and Picasso and Einstein and so on? His idea of aeonics and his idea of the aeon of Horus, the idea that, uh, oh, okay, so like, you know, there's some kind of weird messianic stuff mixed in there where he thought of himself as a kind of prophet of the new era um, as the mouthpiece, yeah, the herald of the of the new aeon. And, uh, you know, this is uh, the mystique of his channeled book, the Book of the Law. You don't have to necessarily buy into all of that stuff, however, to kind of enjoy the perspective and his idea that, you know, there's this kind of long cycle of history and Aeon of Isis and Aeon of Osiris, and it's the Osirian Aeon that's ending. And right around the first decade of the 20th century, according to Crowley, um, the Aeon of Horus, the child, the, the, the child of the union of Isis and Osiris, that that Aeon begins. And that is an Aeon in which... And in its sort of salient feature is that the older institutions based upon a kind of unreflective obedience to doctrine and to custom, those things lose legitimacy. And what the ultimate thing is that emerges is a kind of human beings finally beginning to grow up, finally being able to see things for themselves, to see into things, to perceive things in a way that is not kind of clouded or, or befogged by custom and habitual forms of thought. But crucially, Crowley insisted that, you know, these aeons are very long. For him, the aeon of Osiris is about 2,000 years, and the aeon of Horus presumably would go on for a long, long time. But Within that long cycle, you have periods of transition that are just tumultuous, apocalyptic, not at all the sort of sunny, optimistic, utopian side of aeonics, but quite the opposite, that you could have a period of tremendous stress and kind of dislocation, a kind of earthquake of the collective soul coming from the fact that, uh, you know, you can't move you can't demolish structures that large uh, without a lot of collateral damage and there has to be this sort of period where everything is in ruins everything is in rubble before something new starts to emerge i'm not saying that this is necessarily like what i really think and perhaps crowley's idea of the aeon of horus is sort of a myth in the sense that you know the bible stories are myths which is to say not fabrication is not completely untrue but a certain kind of truth not literal truth but something that might tell us something about the situation that we're in i don't know what do you think of that there's something in what both of you have said here to invoke collapse and then to invoke you know, when you talk about the collapse that occurs dimensionally in a figure ground reversal in a work of static two-dimensional artwork, you know, as, as the gestalt shifts, this notion of the rupture of plane, 
I had a friend, uh, Jonathan Zapp, who, who mm. pointed out to me that a lot of the visionary art going on right now, a perfect example of this would be the Further Collective out of uh, San Francisco, Mars One and Oliver Vernon and, and, and those guys. Their work contains multiple horizons. Like some of the horizons emerge in like little worldlets of their own. And some of them are a, a pattern that's torn open. And, you know, and so there's a sense in which... Uh, a realist perspectival mastery of the medium is applied to an impossible deranged topology. You know, mm. like your brain wants to make it real, wants to like be able to 3D print that painting as a thing and you can't. And I was just telling this story the other day. Uh, I bought a guitar a couple of years ago that was a, a Koa top. And koa is this Hawaiian, rare Hawaiian hardwood that can only be harvested from fallen, legally from fallen trees. There are two guitars that were the same model number with the same tone wood, but one of them sounded so much better than the other. And I asked the salesman, I was like, why is this? And he said, well, I mean, if you look really closely, the grain on this koa is different from the grain on the other one. This grain is curlier and... Curly koa, curly wood in general, happens when a tree falls, like a, an old mature tree in the canopy falls, and suddenly there's a race to get the sunlight. You know, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's the interregnum. Um, mm. And in the dimensional collapse, where the suddenly the illumination available to the top layer of the canopy is available to the floor of the forest, in that moment there is this competition for establishment that means that all of those little saplings grow much faster. They grow with an urgency that they don't have when there's less light, mm -hmm. you know, coming down to the forest. And so they grow like a souffle, like they grow with all of these weird fractals inside the wood that improves the tonal richness it actually improves the soulfulness oh, of the oh, of the wood and that this is like something i want to generalize to a physical or even metaphysical principle here everyone talks about the printing press as though it were just this sort of cumulative advancement into a, you know an ever more enlightened world but what happened was in the legitimacy crisis of the catholic church europe exploded into all of these apocalyptic sects you know, right. and everyone mm -hmm. suddenly everyone who is deputized to interpret the Bible in their own way started a cult. And like, yeah. like it feels very much like that's an important history lesson for what we're in now. Not not only to cast attention to the, the sort of dark side of, you know, what leads up to or like the, the, the necessary conditions for a renaissance because everyone forgets, oh, Renaissance, you know, it means somebody's dying first. Right. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you, gotta, be, yeah. you gotta die to be reborn. Yeah. But there's something about your William James episode. You know, I, I, I've been thinking so much about plural ontology lately. Right. You know, like I had Sean Hargens on the show to talk about his sort of philosophical encounter with the UFO phenomenon and how the inaccessibility of the UFO phenomenon to, again, to replication right. suggests we really are living in a plural reality and we can't wrap our heads around it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, that's sort of a spill everywhere, but with lots of little hooks that maybe I really, one of you I grab. really love what you just said, because actually it's, it, it suggests a way of turning, like what I was talking about, Aeonics and, and the myth of the, the Aeon of Horus, uh, in a way that I always like, which I always like to think of myths as things that do not pertain to some kind of uh, once upon a time long long time ago uh point of origin or for that matter some point in the distant future or a- any other privileged time but happening always right your your insistence on th- uh, and which i really like of thinking of this a- in terms of basic morphologies things that happen for example in a tree canopy but they also happen in human culture and they can happen they can manifest perhaps in a human body um things that are part of the sort of uh, a grammar of process and these myths are ways of giving us insights into what some of those shapes some of those forms are and that grammar of process i really like that yeah yeah thanks yeah (laughs) well that's exactly it that's what i was um i was trying to get at earlier is this this idea that there is a kind of um on our in our last recording phil and i were talking about dogen's dogen's engie's um idea that Although it is true, all is becoming one thing leads to another, and there's this kind of like uh, endless causal cycle going on in the world. Dogen talks about the wood burning and becoming ash. He says, "Well, when the when you know," and he he makes the point that the the state of the wood when it's wood and the state of the wood when it's become ash are distinct. That there's there's something singular about each of these states states that you lose you lose the 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 singularity of it if you just reduce it to a step in a cycle. And I I, I tend to want to think of this time as not just the runes from which will in which we'll rebuild or build something new, but the runes that have in and of themselves, something absolutely singular to offer to us, you know, and something something nice. magical. And one of those things might be exactly this ontological morphology that you just kind of outlined for us, Michael. This idea of the of crisis leading to, in a sense, I would just sum up what you said with like danger or pain or crisis leading to to the creation of beauty. And the connection between horror and beauty, I think, is for me is key. It's a key thing that 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 that, that, uh, that kind of obsesses me. And that's like the tree falling, and then the saplings growing and like, rushing into this. But all from this kind of horrible, and for for a tree mine would be a horrible thing to have happen. Um, producing something that it, it eventually just results in a better guitar. It's kind of like a guitar that's <laughs> making a sound that has suffered, a sound that has experienced. It's like it's like you're you're playing the um, the sorrow and the urgency of that moment from which this wood originates it's kind of exciting and um maybe that's something that that we can have access to now maybe that's one of the reasons why the culture hp lovecraft couldn't be more mainstream than he is you know like i gave my daughter a plush cthulhu for christmas last year so (laughs) um was that after reading eric's cthulhu is not cute right no uh, maybe i don't remember but uh and i i fucking hate the plush cthulhu but when you have a little girl who loves cthulhu you're like what are you gonna do she she has a she drew a picture of cthulhu it's that's on our armoire upstairs it's just basically a huge octopus monster and there's a tiny human and there's a word bubble and cthulhu says can i eat you and the little human the little human says no 
<laughs> just, <laughs> I just love that picture. Well, it's actually, like... that's great because that you inspired something. I thought I just I've been uh, I, I just had that I think speaks to that specific thing, which is this notion that the accumulation of individual experience is somehow metabolized by or transubstantiated into uh, some other mind or store of experience or collective computation or however you want to think about it that's happening at a at a, a greater uh, level you know right. i think a lot of I, I think i am often wondering like i was talking about earlier in terms of like you know the the social uh landscape and how different minds play different kinds of roles in that landscape that's my theodicy I wrote a song years ago in which I said, you know, like every form is a form of cutting and God gets off on self-abuse and every brokenhearted love song is a bomb at the end of an automatic fuse. Right. And like, and That's yet, great. what is that, ex what is that explosion doing? It's, it's contributing to the map of all possible tributaries of this river basin of all, you know, possible experiences. And then somehow that overhead view is its own distinct thing. And so like, that's, I feel like the, the paranoia, is where the human says no to Cthulhu. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, I rebel against this notion that my life is for something other than myself. Um, right. That it's, that I'm not just food for the gods or whatever. Um, right. And yet I think it also, it deserves to be said as I like luxuriate in the paranoid here that this twilight or sunrise, you know, these liminal spaces in between these easy to categorize times, this is when the panther is actively out to get you because yeah. your sun, your eyes are not as good. You know, right. like we're in the, in a process of adjusting to the new regime. And so this is like the very moment that beauty and danger do really touch in a pronounced and obvious way. And I, I've you know, like every single, uh, you know, to bring up the acid trip it's been a while but like every i remember you know in college every single acid trip i had i would get lost in beauty at some yeah. moment and then yeah. something would would snap me back like i would hit like the re the the thermostat like the air, the ac unit would turn on right and and i would be like there's a tiger behind me right like exactly. every single time i would get lost in the beauty and i would be like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute the logical consequence of absorption in beauty is becoming a, a meal prey becoming prey but, yeah but also that there's some kind on a deeper level some kind of intrinsic link intrinsic link between the possibility of the panther coming out at any moment and the power to see beauty i don't think that if i think that if the panther wasn't there we wouldn't be able to see the beautiful the singular the and, and i mean it would take a while to unpack that but i just love the way that you know delphine my daughter at least made Cthulhu kind enough to ask for permission before. And maybe, maybe the panther that we're all facing is not as cruel as Lovecraft might have wanted it to be, or, as, or even as, as indifferent. Maybe the panther is just part of the dance that also makes the beauty possible. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that there's some kind of like yin-yang thing going on whereby um, it is, in a sense, the horror that frames the situation such that we can perceive the sublime, perceive the beautiful, and perceive even the true. And and so I like that moment because I've had that moment. Um, I've had that experience a few times of getting immersed in something 
beautiful and then getting whipped back into reality by you know somebody just tapping on your shoulder but all of a sudden you react as though it was someone attacking you because when you're close to beauty you're always close to that too right well to be enraptured is to be grabbed Right. right. Like yeah. literally, like the rapture is when the God hand comes yeah. down and lifts up everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Raptor. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. totally. Velocirapture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to turn this in a slightly different direction, uh, invoke the grouchy German neo Marxist philosopher Theodor Adorno. Uh, one of his lines that is very often quoted is uh, that there is no document of. Um, I can't remember the line perfectly, probably going to butcher it, but it's something to the effect of uh, there's no document of civilization or no document of culture that is not at the same time a document of barbarism. Right. And the standard understanding of that, uh, and indeed almost like uh, universal understanding of that, is, you know, the uh, common sense, a uh, kind of common sense one where, where we're like, yeah, you know, you don't get um, – the, the great works of art without um, systems of oppression that allow for inequality, allow for, uh, for example, the uh, capitalization of the, the art market and the creation of like a star system that uh, picks some people out of obscurity and turns them into art stars and other people's languish in obscurity. Uh, so on and so forth. I mean, I'm actually giving like a really shallow or superficial example of it, but you can see any number of ways you can just sort of imagine any number of ways in which um, the processes of society that are unquestionably barbaric. For example, I mean, a really simple example, um, the a barbaric situation of animals in farms, the farms that make our food, you know can't make art without uh, having some food in your belly and that is in a very direct way a human system erected atop a an edifice of animal misery right that's the way we always tend to understand that but you can also flip it around so like yes and there's no there's no barbarism that is not also a document of civilization Right. document of culture that it it goes both ways that there is this kind of necessary interlinking of beauty and barbarism or cruelty just thinking back to your example of the canopy the sudden rent in a tree canopy and the like obscene avidity of these shoots as they you know kind of reach for the light you know perhaps it would be easy to sentimentalize that but i'm really glad that jf invoked lovecraft here because you know lovecraft i think partly because he was um <laughs> so paranoid and weird had a particular ability to see the cruelty uh and horror in apparently kind of normal and benign things and there is you know, you, you sort of think like, oh, well, growing things. That's nice, right? We yeah. like growing shoots. Plants. Right? <laughs> plants, yeah. yeah. Who but doesn't like, like plants? A, yeah, exactly. But there's also something kind of Oops. grotesque and awful about the, about the just the, uh, as I say, the obscene avidity, not just of plants, but of life itself. Right. How adventitious it is. How much it's always... You know, sort of blindly, this is sort of like Schopenhauer's point about the will, just 
blindly groping towards advantage. You see example of it. I'm I've, uh, somehow every con damn conversation that I have comes back either to uh, Buddhism or fighting. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> and so, well. like you can see it, you can see it in uh, a professional fight, like a, a prize fight. You know, people who don't watch fights, if I ever am sitting there watching a fight and somebody who doesn't watch fights watches it with me, they usually get like really turned off because they see this kind of savagery where it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, he just hurt him with a punch to the body. And so the guy's going to just keep winging punches to that same sore place over and over again until the other guy collapses. And that's a vision of savagery right but that's just life doing what life does which is just like finding an opening and just seething through that opening uh taking maximum advantage and in the context of like a, a fight a, like a prize fight it looks cruel and violent and in your pot of geraniums it looks beautiful but it's really the same thing it's this <laughs> This, you know, what what Lovecraft doubtless would have imagined or seen is this kind of, you know, loathsome prolificity of yeah. life. Uh, and that is something that is at once the source of all beauty and also the source of all horror. So to really drive that one home, I just attended a talk by John Pepper at the National Cancer Institute. He was pointing to the fact that what we think of as the mutations that drive cancer show up in tissues all over the body where cancer isn't happening. What's going on? Turns out the pattern of risk conditions for cancer are all conditions that oversupply energy to tissues where the example is, you know, we lived on the savannah, we came by sugar rarely, now it's available everywhere all the time. And we can't help ourselves and we just, you know, consume, we eat like, you know, fanatically, madly, like Saturn eating his Young, children. Yeah. It's just like this, <laughs> this like horror of like, watch myself consume a pint of ice cream in horror. And, <laughs> and um, that's exactly what's going on with cancer, that it's a metabolic thing. And right. that, you know, to scale up your comments about the barbarism and civilization, I'm still wrestling with the implications now that I accept the fact that every joke I laugh at, every beautiful dress I admire, every piece of music that launches me into an awe is supported by the discovery of petroleum and the right. fact that like humankind has blossomed like a tumor yeah. You know, that we've metastasized around the, the surface of this planet. And, uh, you know, to the degree that we're, we're like a tumor that's like, I'm going to grow legs and live over there, too. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> Mars, you're looking pretty good. A contagious cancer. Yeah. yeah like, what the fuck? So, yeah. like, to, to sit with this and to sit with the question of, of what it means to accept that possibly... I'm willing to consider... And I, I talked about this in episode 12 of this show with Mark Lee way back in the day. Because he was a fan of the zero point energy, like free energy stuff. And I said, all right, so let's assume that this is legit, that this history is valid, that over unity engines have been invented a dozen times or more over the last century and have been r routinely and systematically suppressed. Are we sure 
that they've been suppressed by people who are doing it to suppress humanity right to keep us down or are they doing it because they know that if we had unlimited energy we would turn the entire planet into like candy right you know like it's just <laughs> that there's yeah. not just the planet it would be the entire universe <laughs> right if we right. had unlimited you know? energy we would turn everything into a fucking suburban yeah. suburban bathroom or something i don't know so, so yeah we've met the enemy and he is us right like right. and i think that that's that's an important piece of this confrontation with the weird there, there's a great um i remember henry miller said that he, he's like, man, I, I wrote my best work when I was literally homeless in Paris in the 30s. And now I've got a house and a wife, a young wife. <laughs> and he realized that he needed discomfort. So he would do things like he would put he, he would put pebbles on his chair and sit on rocks to write. Or he would, you know, just force himself into discomfort because he realized that he needed that that little thorn in his side, that little, you know, that little something poking um, in order to um, be able to produce work that that was acceptable to him. And I think there's something to that. You know, you need that little joker in the pack, that little exception, that little something that makes your your structures of thought unstable. I said this on the night that Trump was elected. I said the art is going to be great. I remember that. Years. I remember you yeah. saying that. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. so good. The comedians ha- are going to be awesome. Yeah. But has the but, art been all that good, though? <laughs> Maybe it has. I don't know. I don't follow too closely. It's hard. It's hard to say within the thing. Yeah. It's I know. easier to look it's back true. on it and say, right. you know what? That was, let's compare that to the 10 years before. You know, like the 90s were pretty on fire as far as art goes. And I think a lot of that had to do with uh, millennial anxiety. So. Right. You know, and hey, the Matrix is coming back. They're making a fourth Matrix. Yeah, well, there you <laughs> so go. So it's like, well, it's it's time for that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. I want to get kind of strategic about this. Hunter S. Thompson has that great quote, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. <laughs> yeah. So let's speculate, um, if you'll indulge me. What would it look like for the weird to turn pro? Like what, what would, what does it mean if the founding conceit of your show that, that you're not going to get an opportunity to talk about this any other way is mistaken. And suddenly, you know, you two guys are like experts on this thing. We're we're on CNN. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're sought after high level managerial consultants right right (laughs) yeah how to restructure your your business to allow a bit of weirdness and (laughs) and yeah yeah i'll have a diet book coming out i mean it's the same i i don't i don't weird diet yeah (laughs) what do you eat yes i don't even know what i'm eating (laughs) exactly (laughs) just reach your hand into this paper bag and eat whatever's inside it don't (laughs) (laughs) just eat it what is it negative capability man yeah exactly (laughs) it's dwell in uncertainty (laughs) i i I stand by my initial feeling and claim that the minute there is an actual weird studies department somewhere weird studies will it it just it won't it it won't be weird studies (laughs) not i don't mean my show i mean it won't be it won't be weird studies you cannot you can't do it because the weird is is just what escapes the epistem that's just mm. that's just it. So you can't have yeah. a, an institutionalized 
version of that. You 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 can have um you can have moments of weirdness, and I I think that even we uh, I mean I'm not and I don't I don't think we're experts. I think even people who specialize in the weird. And again, I, just to make this clear, I don't think that we are the canaries in the mine shaft here, and n- n- neither of us or nor you, Michael. But I think people we had predecessors who did a lot of work in this area. We're kind of the first dead miners, maybe, or the. <laughs> <laughs> but like the thing about weirdness is that you just can't. It's precisely what it lose categorization. And if you try to form a discipline that investigates that, well, then you're going to create categories of the weird that wouldn't, I think, correspond to the basic criteria of what the word in its etymology requires of us. Like, it's just yeah. not possible. Yeah, you know, academia is founded upon a contradiction, which is that... The coin of the realm, you know, if you want to establish an academic career, if you get a professorship and you have to work your way up to get tenure and keep going and establish yourself as an international presence or whatever, then the coin of the realm is originality, right? Newness. But the contradiction is that it has to be assessed, Like the most fundamental structure of academia is peer review and peer review can actually take the form of, you know, actual peer review. Like you submit a journal article and they send it out to experts or it can be something much more general. Um, I sometimes say somewhat cynically that it translates to a general ethos in academia that you ain't shit till someone says you are. And with this ethos, it's just sort of like, okay, I'm going to create something original and new. Great. Now we need to find some experts who can tell us if it's original and new in the right way. And so the first impulse, it's not even categorization necessarily, although categorization somehow always does come into it, creating typologies. But even deeper than that, it's being able to replicate things. We were talking about the replication crisis, and that's a very specific thing that has to do, of course, with the basic idea in science that a result has to be replicable. But the idea of replication or repetition is really key to all academic disciplines. The ability of a scholar, for example, to be able to bring up younger scholars, to train graduate students who can think in a manner somewhat similar, you know, that we can show you how to do it. And that when you learn how to do it, that people will have the tools to be able to understand what it is you're doing. So there's always this sort of inbuilt structure of like repetition. And I don't see any way that academia can even function as an organism, as a system, without that. It's neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. It's one of those, you know, universal morphological patterns of process. It's just some. It's just how that system works. But to me, you know, all the stuff that we we talk about on the show is always things that are like exceptions or things that were, you know, it manifests uh, or it's just as JF was saying, um, it's always things that elude categorization. It's always the, you know, unique stuff, um, stuff that you can't generalize from or even just sort of like uh, – on the most abstract philosophical level, we are always having conversations about pluralism versus monism, and we're always coming down in favor of pluralism. Because, you know, sort of like William James, we really like the stubbornly unassimilated fact 
the right. uh, the sui generis, uh, you know, work of art or, or moment of a work of art. It's just a, a, a habit and a disposition. It's also, I think, kind of where the weird is. And so to me, you know, weird studies, like I came up with the name of this, and it was originally a blog post from my now defunct blog, Dial M for Musicology. Uh, but it was a joke. I started it off as a, as a joke that, you know, imagining weird studies as an academic field, and then it was the, the the essay I wrote announced the birth and death of weird studies because there's almost this kind of thing where the moment you announce it as a thing is the moment that it's already gone. How's that? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like there's almost a, like tissue rejection, like rejection at the molecular level of this sort of pluralist, um, ungeneralizable, unreplicatable uh, level of experience. It, if there's almost just kind of a, a, a tissue rejection of that in the structures of academia, which isn't to say that there aren't weird things in academia. In fact, there's plenty of weird things if you know where to look. Lots of cool little interstices. There are books. I'm, I'm in fact, just decided to assign one to a doctoral seminar that I'm beginning to teach next week by... A guy named Mitchell Morris, who works out at UCLA, and he wrote a wonderful, wonderful book about 70s pop music. And I mean the poppiest of pop music, like The Carpenters or Cher uh, or Barry Manilow. And it's a book called The Persistence of, the Persistence of Sentiment. And that is a glorious book because it is a, it's a book by a true blue, a credentialed academic, um, very distinguished academic. But his method, quote unquote, is just like it's his own wonderful intuition and tremendously sensitive kind of aesthetic organ, like responding to these things and setting down that response in elegant prose. And it's a weird book. It never got the shine that I feel like it should have. It didn't win big awards. Um, but fuck it. To me, it's like the best musicological book that I've seen published in the last 10 years. Um, and what, and it's a book by somebody who's thoroughly an insider in the biz, but he managed to create something really weird and, and wonderful. And that happens all the time. But, you know, you're never going to... I don't think you're ever going to see a department because <laughs> or, even, a, or whatever, you know, even formed in on those lines. Right. Even in quarters uh, where the weird is sought after, let's say, like in certain genres of music or, you know, certain musical scenes or art scenes, even there, the weird's an exception. The weird's always an exception. Even in the, the work of a, a weird fiction author, the weird is an exception, which is why their output tends to be meager. Yeah. Well, so, so the weird is always an exception, necessarily, or else it wouldn't be weird. But I, I want to just follow up what what Phil just said and what I was saying before with just one more thing to answer that question is that, you know, like Heidegger when he was talking about technology, he said that when we look at modern technology, we have to see the great danger it represents, but we also have to try to perceive the saving power it contains. And I think it's the same with this, let's call it this popularization or this mainstreaming of the weird. It has a great danger and it has a saving power. It has a great potential. I think the great danger is exactly what happened with things like mindfulness. It's very possible, very conceivable that there will be weird consultants very soon going into organizations, to companies, whatever, and trying to reorganize things so that the unexpected has a chance of like happening there so that uh, people's routines are disturbed in, in slight 
ways, but also very like you know ways that are conducive to increasing pr- production at the end of the day. Like you know, I, right. and it's I think that's guaranteed, and it's going to be lucrative as hell. Right. Yeah. I think Google already does that. They don't call it that, but that's what they're doing. Innovation so, well, the whole idea of disruption is already yeah. the kind of the beginnings of the weirding of of capitalism. You know, disruption was not a good idea in capitalist circles, like cigar toting circles back in the nineteen twenties. You know, it's 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 the key capitalist notion today. It, um, so I think that it's that's already happening. That's the danger. So when there's a weird studies department, we know that that danger has has bloomed. It's like it's it's here. It's it's manifested. And then the great saving power, I think has to do with with another type of weirdness because when we, we usually when we talk about the weird we're talking about what I call epistemological weirdness weird to me weird because I don't know yet what's there oh, it's weird that feels weird because I don't know yet but then there's the weird that is the weird in itself and I do strongly believe that there is such a thing uh, we discuss it on the show quite a bit and like I think that the, the, the saving power is maybe the emergence of a culture that is able to maintain its focus on civilization, whatever it is we're doing here on this planet, while also lightening its grip on its own cognitive takes, on its own categories, being able to use concepts without reifying concepts, being able to maintain an ideology while allowing it to dissolve when it's no longer useful, or at least noticing that it does dissolve when it's no longer useful anyways, while you know being able to maintain a, co- a cognitive model while knowing that all cognitive models are like 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 fantastical floating cities over uh, a kind of like Solaris like ocean planet and that these islands we live on are suspended and they're suspended by our own kind of weird co-creation between us and the world but none of our ideas no matter how sophisticated no matter how replicable no matter how you know peer reviewed will ever get to ever touch that that weird shimmering surface of the the world that we actually live on, live on like for some reason there's always that distance it's that oh 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 you know ob- object oriented ontology take where you can never touch the thing in itself it's there it is its own thing but you're always kind of just orbiting around it approaching it through what Graham Harmon calls allure and and exploration experimentation but that if we could just embrace that as a as a kind of a basic truth, we might have a culture that would have a chance at, at not just surviving, but kind of thriving in this new yeah. uh, uncertain world. That's the Aeon of Horus. There we go. I, I've been editing the conversation I had with David Weinberger, who is a philosopher at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. And he wrote this book called Everyday Chaos, which I found surprisingly refreshing because what he's saying Uh, And what he said in the show was, yes, there are all of these ethical problems. He's specifically looking like AI that we don't understand, like AlphaGo, right? Like we Mm -hmm. don't know how it's winning against the Go Master. We can't figure it out. It's a black box. And for years, I was sitting there going, well, how is this not just, we're we're just back to worshiping the black cube, you know? Or the, our, the 2001 our, space monolith. Right. Yeah. Like our priests, which is funny because at SFI, they made two monoliths on campus. They, oh, wow. They've erected two monoliths. But cool. I think there's something in the fact that they erected two of them mm-hmm. that you know speaks to this, this pluralism. 
at, mm. at any rate, mm. at any rate, Weinberger, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, there are problems with us not understanding the thing and why it works, not being able to provide the kind of explanation that we would have found sufficient. But he's like, he's like, but we were always kind of bullshitting ourselves because there's really no difference between knowing the machine algorithm is broken and that it is prejudiced against women or whatever, you know, you can say, okay, that's the explanation is that this thing is how deep your explanation goes. It's never been that deep. And that like, if you say, well, why did you get a flat tire? Well, I ran over a nail. This is his example. Okay. But where did the nail come from? And suddenly you have this like infinite dimensional thing that completely transcends any effort to try and narrativize this and like make it a clean, tidy little thing. And so, you know, to the floating islands, it's like, well, the islands were always floating. Right. Um, Somehow we just thought they were solid ground. Right. Yeah. And we know what happens in cartoons. When somebody notices there's no solid ground under their feet. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just keep pretending. (laughs) One more twist on this that I want to, because it sounds to me like ontologically irreducible weirdness. It reminds me a lot of Hakeem Bey and uh, temporary autonomous zone. And this notion that as soon as something is, has been realized as a utopia, it becomes a dystopia. It becomes an imperial prison. And so the party moves. And so you just never, you never stabilize. And I don't know, is it too much to ask? Because I usually end these shows, you know, inviting people to speculate into some unthinkable future. Is it too much to ask if everything that that we have epistemologically labeled as weird for human history is the new normal, then what is the new weird? What is the content that will rush into to fill that space? Like what? What do you think is the? I guess the next weird Roman Catholicism. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking weird. Now, I don't know, uh, Phil. Do you have an answer to that? I don't. But I'm no. Speechless. But I think I, th- I think I think that in a way, when we we start like one one of, one of my favorite things that happens in our conversations when we talk about suddenly how normal things become weird, like really mundane, banal things become weird. And um, maybe, I, I think that ultimately, the search for epistemological weirdness is always a kind of cipher or a kind of um, symbol for the deeper search for ontological weirdness. And I think that the deeper search for ontological weirdness is a search for gnosis. Like, I think that it's, it. I don't see the discovery of ontological weirdness as a negative thing. Oh, I'll never know. Oh, I can't know. I think I know that I can't know is a positive development, I think. So in a way, um, I find now, I like, like, I'll tell you, like, I've, I, like I said before, I've had the misfortune or good fortune or whatever of having had a few crazy experiences, whatever you may think of that, you probably, most of your listeners would probably just assume that. I imagine them or that I misperceived something. Uh, some might believe that I saw very specific things that they think exist. I don't know, but I had some weird experiences. But my favorite weird experiences were little moments. I, t- I used to take walks in the evening. So I'll just walk by the cemetery here in Vanier and I'll notice, I don't know, just the way the light falls on a tombstone or even less weird than that, um, just the way a particular plant is growing 
clinging to a tree or something. I don't know. There's little things like that that to me just become resonant with that, just the weirdness of the fact that we can find things weird at all. You know, the weirdness of the fact that we can wait for the miracle, the weirdness of the fact that we're thinking. Maybe that's, for me, that's what's weird, but I can't possibly predict what people will think is weird in the future. But I think Roman Catholicism is a good candidate. And they'll, be, they'll be flocking. They'll be flocking to the Vatican, you know, just for a good look at it. Just what you were describing, uh, the you know the slant of light on a vine twisted round a piece of chain link fence or whatever. You yeah. know, you can talk. You can say that's uh, the inbreaking of the weird, or you could say that's poetry. Is there you know, a difference? A po- yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's a poetic moment. I don't know. It's from a certain point of view, it seems like we're living in very unpoetic times, but uh, I don't know. You can't keep poetry down. Right. It's just, it's, it, there's a sort of obscene avidity to poetry just as there is to life. Right. It just want, it just always wants more. It just right. wants to break in. Yeah. It's actually, it takes an enormous, uh, an obstinate effort on our part not to notice that shit. Indeed. Well, that's I guess that's a good spot to Yeah, I to think that wrap was a great this. spot. Except yeah, except the last word that I said was shit, which is a very unpoetic last uh, word. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's out of your William James episode, you lingered on this quote that I hadn't ever heard the whole thing. The quote was to no one type of mind is it given to discern the totality of truth. Something escapes the best of us. Not accidentally, but systematically. Right. And because we have a twist. It's irreducible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. The crooked timber of humanity. Old Grandpa James said it best. The crooked timber, yes. Or or as uh, William Irwin Thompson used on the header for his Wild River Review blog, we Irish think otherwise. <laughs> that's your closer (laughs) awesome great gentlemen it's a pleasure yeah Yeah, this was was fun fun. thanks for listening to future fossils this podcast is a part of the mind pod network along with numerous other excellent programs go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all if you'd like to help support future fossils Consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, the Future Fossils coloring book and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. 